0: Today's readings from 1 Corinthians 1 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You may be seated.
1: And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Father, we've come this morning to receive. We've come as sinners and sufferers uh, to receive this good news. Good news that undoubtedly will be heard as foolishness by some here this morning. And yet for us, it is that pearl of greatest price, that jewel we treasure. And so I pray that you would help us to see the cross of your son Jesus more clearly, more gloriously this morning. Amen. Before we begin, I just want to remind you, if you haven't been here the past two weeks, we're giving out these uh, First Corinthians scripture journals, which will help you follow along in our series. If you need one of those right now, I'd encourage you to put your hand up, and On's going to come around and give you one of these scripture journals. He's not listening to me right now. He's ignoring me. Uh, On is going to come around and give you one of these scripture journals. So put your hand up right now. He's going to give you one. It's our gift to you. One in the front row, a couple over there. Uh, take one of these keep it. Uh, it will be a huge a gift to you. Thank you, on for doing that. A couple over here as well. appreciate that. This morning, we're in week three of our series in 1 Corinthians. You need one right there. Two over here. I'm going to throw it to you, okay? You ready? There we go. I feel like I'm at like a hockey game or something, you know, with the t-shirt cannon. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. This is week three, and there's so much in our text this morning. I'm going to skip a a fancy introduction, and we're just going to dive into it. I want us to see three things in our text this morning. Three things that are very important. First, power and wisdom according to Jews and Greeks. Second, power and wisdom according to the cross. And then thirdly and finally... Power and wisdom in our life. Power and wisdom according to the Jews and the Greeks, and Paul will explain what that means. Power and wisdom according to the cross of Christ. And then power and wisdom in our life, being very practical as we conclude. As we've seen, the great Achilles heel of the Corinthian church, and really of of all churches everywhere in all places, is that they have brought with them, from their pagan life, old ways of thinking, old ways of being, old ways of knowing. This has extended now to how the Corinthians think and lived out ideas concerning wisdom and power. Ideas around what was effective, powerful in this life. What was the worldly power and wisdom the Corinthians brought with them into the church? I want to look at verse 22 together. And if you have your Bible or that scripture journal, look with me. And there Paul writes simply, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. See, the church in Corinth was this this mixed group of people, this beautifully mixed group of, of different socioeconomic classes, different ethnicities. But at the heart of that mix, as it were, there were Jews and Greeks. In Acts 18, we read that Paul, as was his custom, went to the synagogue in Corinth and there began to preach Christ, to teach about the Messiah who had come in Jesus. And some believed, in fact, some of the first followers in Corinth were these these Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior. But we also read and we'll get to that in a bit, that some were not excited about Paul's message, about Jesus as crucified Messiah. And so Paul says, you know what? I'm done with you guys. I'm going to the Gentiles. And some of these non-Jews, these outsiders, people like me and and you essentially, were welcomed into the church. It's this mixed group of people. And, And like a good pastor who knows his flock, Paul has identified two predominant ideas among this church that no longer belong in the Christian community. A a Jewish understanding of power or signs and a Greek understanding of what true wisdom is. To see what these are and to recognize uh, their modern manifestations among us, I want us to look at these in turn. First, a Jewish understanding of power. Uh, you know this if you've read the Gospels before. But one of the biggest stumbling blocks uh, to Jesus and to Jesus' ministry amongst the Jews was that Jesus was not the Messiah they expected him to be. Here are the Jewish people under Roman occupation, under Roman oppressors. And here comes Jesus and he does what? He, he dies on a cross. You know, one time Jesus feeds 5,000 people and it kind of whets the appetite of his Jewish audience. And like, all right, this is the king, right? John records this, perceiving then after this this miracle that Jesus does, feeding 5,000, perceiving then that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king. If Jesus wasn't going to anoint himself king, we'll anoint Jesus king ourselves. We'll do it. What does Jesus do? Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's disappointing. They're hoping that Jesus would come and and liberate and, and save them. And he's withdrawing. He's going to the cross. And so when Paul comes to Corinth, and we read about this in Acts 18, and preaches... To the Jews that Christ, their Messiah, was this crucified Jesus, it is no wonder that Luke records the Jews opposed and reviled Paul. They weren't just indifferent to his message, they reviled him. L- listen, we can imagine them saying something like this, and we can be sympathetic to their opposing and reviling. You're telling me that the hope we've been waiting for, the one that Isaiah and Ezekiel and all these prophets we're talking about our hope has been crucified? we're supposed to be okay with that? celebrate that? look around you Paul the Romans tolerate us now. They're okay with us now, but that's not going to last long. They will turn on us as all people have turned on us. And you're saying our hope was crucified. We can sympathize with the opposition and reviling Paul received. Because really, when I say a Jewish understanding of power, what I'm talking about, and we all know this, I'm talking about a worldly Understanding of power. An understanding of power that the not just the Jews have, but we have. That you have and I have. It is power that is power over. Uh, Power to throw off your chains. Power to overthrow your captors. Power over your situation, your future, your destiny. Today, if you want power... Salvation from your situation, we believe, don't we? It must be taken. No one will give it to you. But actually, Paul's saying more than the Jews have this understanding of power. And he's actually saying more than the world has this understanding of power. He's saying this understanding of power as power over has made its way into the church amongst Christians. Well, how has that happened? Remember, Paul's not writing a letter to the whole city of Corinth to be read uh, at the steps or on the steps of the Acrocorinth or to be read in a public square. He's writing a letter to a people who've already trusted in Jesus. Yet they're people who still hold on to their previous notions of power. And here's what I think we find in Corinth I don't know if you notice this in our passage, and look at your Bibles with me, but Paul situates these seven verses, just in these passing remarks, in a larger story, in a larger biblical narrative. He says there are some who are perishing. There are people who are going somewhere. He says there are some who are being saved, people who are going to a different place. He asks rhetorically, where is a debater, did you notice, of this age? See, Paul has a story in mind as he writes the Corinthian church. And in this story, the age the Corinthians are in is this time between the times. This now, but not yet. What do I mean by that? We live, obviously, After the cross of Christ, after Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, we live now by the Holy Spirit. Yes, saved. Yes, walking in step with his Spirit. But we are waiting for the day of Christ's return a day Paul will describe later in 1 Corinthians 13 as a day when we know fully, know fully, even as we are fully known. Members of the Corinthian church, however, driven, influenced, informed by their remaining conceptions of worldly power, have forgotten what age they occupy, where they're at in the story. They were living as if the Spirit had come in full, without limit, without measure, as if Jesus had already returned, as if they were already ruling and reigning in a worldly sense over this place. As if life should now be easy and not hard. Victorious, not a battle. Always high, And never low. We see this teaching, don't we? In Christian churches all over the place today that want you to have your best life, not then, but now. Right? You should experience a victorious life now. If God really loved you, he'd give you the Ferrari now. The mansion now. The health now. And if you're sick, oh, that's a matter of unbelief. God wants you to have it all now. See, theologians call what the Corinthian church is experiencing, what we experience and see, an over-realized eschatology. That's your $10,000 church word this morning. An over-realized eschatology. And you're like, Jake, that's super confusing. What does that mean? Let me put it on the screen behind you. People who suffer from an overrealized eschatology think that they have more blessings from the future now than they actually do. So if you're a Christian, you believe that there is coming a day when we will receive everything in fullness. Right? Enjoy Christ in fullness, face to face. We will know even as we are fully known. But there are some who teach and believe that all that's in the future can be had now and it's wrong. In fact, it's heresy. And for the first Corinthians, or rather for the Corinthians, we're going to see that this over-realized eschatology, this overabundant end times thinking will be at the root of about 90% of the problems that they're enduring as a church. They want that power now. We have to go on because there's more in our text today, but that will come up again, so keep that in your notes and in your brain. Second thing, we have a Jewish understanding of power, but the other thing to which Paul speaks to is a Greek understanding of wisdom. Again, verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. What is the wisdom that these Greeks thought, uh, sought? One scholar writes this. When they thought of wisdom, they were primarily concerned with gaining intellectual knowledge that could be leveraged for the purpose of attaining influence and power. Wisdom then was viewed as a tool for achieving self-gain. Not only was wisdom interested in accumulating knowledge for self-gain, wisdom also had to do with the, the rhetoric by which these thoughts were presented. And so last week we saw Paul, or heard Paul rather, refer to eloquent speech, right? Eloquent speech. Now I want to be very careful here when talking about wisdom. Paul talks about here this wisdom that should be distinguished from what we should call good wisdom. If you were with us in our Proverbs series, you know that there is a wisdom that is good and beautiful that we should pursue, A way of being in this world that accords with God's revelation. That's what Proverbs is all about. And we can live into that wisdom, not on our own strength, but by the power of his Holy Spirit. There is a good wisdom, a biblical wisdom that we should pursue. Further to the point, there is a practical wisdom and knowledge that was integral to living in a city like Corinth. You have to imagine There's a lot going on in Corinth, a lot of people to know, markets to figure out, right? Corners of the city that you should avoid after a certain time. You needed wisdom to navigate life in Corinth, and that's not a bad thing to network. It is not a bad thing to know the market. It is not a bad thing to not go to that corner of the city past 11 o'clock at night. That's good, what we could call common wisdom. See, Paul's not speaking disparagingly here about biblical wisdom or common wisdom. What he is disparaging, however, is wisdom that has pushed man to the forefront and God off to the side. It is wisdom in service of the glory of man. I don't know if you remember the story of the Tower of Babel that we find in Genesis. But there, man puts together all of its efforts All of its energy, all of its wisdom to do what? To build a monument for our glory. And we see that wisdom back then, we see it in the Greeks, in the Romans, and we see it now. It's wisdom which glories in man. And just as the Jewish conception of power has made its way into the church, this Greek concept of wisdom was also found among Paul's recipients which is a huge problem, because to the Greeks, the, these Gentiles, the cross, as Paul has told us this morning, is foolishness, is stupid. The word is that word moron, from which we get the word moron. It's, it's silliness. And, and we see this really clearly in, in ancient architecture. There is this uh, piece of ancient graffiti. And you can see it on the screen now. And it's called, Aleximonos Worships His God. And this was discovered around the year 200 A.D. This is a tracing of it. They had to kind of, you know, kind of outline it on the wall. because It's faded now, as you can imagine. It's quite old. And anyways, th- this graffiti from the year 200 A.D., found near the, uh, the, the Roman Palatine Hill, depicts Aleximonos on the left there. And he's worshipping a crucified figure, which is supposed to be Jesus. Instead of having a a man's head, it has a donkey's head. You you can figure it out. Christians worship a silly donkey man. A, A stupid man who wasn't strong enough to bring his army with him. Instead, he got crucified. You can imagine these Romans walking to the market or to the temple, looking at this graffiti and laughing amongst themselves. Christians walking with them, kind of covering their, their face in shame, embarrassed. Recognize what, what the heart of their gospel is. It's a crucifixion of, of Jesus of Nazareth. It's foolishness, silliness, smoronic. Wisdom to the Greeks was not found in the crucified donkey man, but in their great philosophers. In contemplative study, in mastery of their world. To the Jews and to us, power was power over. To the Greeks and to us, wisdom was a tool for social gain. And into these deeply held beliefs, beliefs that have come to define our generation and our world, Paul introduces the cross. The cross. Point two. Power and wisdom according to the cross. Let's read verse 18 to 21 again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then Paul asked rhetorically, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. This Greek form of wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Remember, Paul is situating Corinth in their right place in salvation history. We, he says, we live in this now but not yet. And at the center of this story is an event that has changed everything. A historical event, which is at the center of all world history. At the center of history is the cross. I want to show us now three ways the cross is infinitely more powerful and wise than we think. First is this. The cross is power to frustrate our worldly notions of power and wisdom. As you may have discovered, the cross does not make sense to those who are perishing. In a few weeks, we'll hear Paul say these words in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, that is, by the Spirit. It's foolishness to people who don't have the Spirit. See, unless the Spirit of God gives our co-workers ears to hear, our friends' ears to hear, our neighbors' eyes to see, the person devoid of the Holy Spirit will never comprehend the true nature of the cross. It will always be to them foolishness moronic, silliness. And I want to just stop and just encourage you this morning with right and good expectation. What has become to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, so precious and so beautiful and so glorious, the cross of Christ, it will be viewed as complete and utter garbage by the person in the cubicle next to you. That's what the Bible promises us. That's what Scripture teaches us. If they really understand what you're saying, they might give you a polite nod because they're Canadian, right? Oh, yeah. But inside, internally, they're drawing their own version of Aleximonos worships as God. (laughs) That's what's happening. Let me encourage you. Christ City, don't grow disheartened. In fact, grow increasingly eager and urgent in your sharing. Their unwillingness to embrace the cross, Paul says, is a sign of their perishing, which means we should all the more proclaim it to them, right? If that's where they're going. See, the only way to know God is through the cross. Our city is littered with tales of of spiritual encounters, and maybe you met some spiritual encounter tales this week. Of meeting God, meeting God on a psychedelic trip, or meeting God in some sexual encounter, or meeting God on some retreat on Bowen Island, or you fill in the blank. Many stories are told, even some that sound vaguely like the God of the Bible, vaguely true. But listen, Christ city. Listen closely, and without fail, I promise you, in all these encounters, the cross will be absent. It will be gone. Ask what you think of a crucified Messiah for our sins, and you will get a response of a stern look, a condescending laugh, the backside of someone's hand, or some combination thereof. And in that moment, you can be sure, you can be sure that there has been no encounter with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian, in his meditating on the word, once wrote this, and we should should pause here, because I think what he says is profound. If it is I who says where God will be, I will always find there a God who corresponds to me, is agreeable to me, but if it is God who says where he will be, the place is the cross of Christ. Second, while the cross cross frustrates and eludes our world, the cross is power for our salvation. Paul writes, and we heard, again I read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Listen. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In verse 19, Paul's quoting from Isaiah 29. And the broader context of Isaiah 29 is that Israel is trusting in a military alliance with Egypt. Things are not going well, and so Israel has said, let's make an alliance with Egypt. They can help us. They can save us. They can rescue us. They're trusting in their supposed wisdom. They're not trusting in God or the word of his prophet Isaiah. So God says in the verse before the one Paul quotes in Isaiah 29 verse 13. It's a beautiful verse. You should go and read it. Paul says, or rather Isaiah says, rather God says, I'm going to do something totally unexpected, totally surprising. And this surprising thing will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This surprising thing will frustrate the discernment of the discerning. This surprising thing will both judge and save. Both judge and save. In other words, God says, I'm going to do something that if you want to be saved, Israel, if you want peace, Israel, it's going to take trusting in me. And he didn't lie. God didn't lie. The surprising and wonderful event that Isaiah prophesied is none other than the crucifixion of the Son of God. God does not come and destroy his enemies with a sword or a hammer. He sends his son instead to die for them in their place. Is that not surprising, Christ city? Who among us could have dreamt up Christianity? Who among us could have dreamt up the cross, could have conceived of the cross? In his wisdom, in a way that reveals his tender and loving and gentle heart, God has said, this is how I'm going to save my people. I'm going to surprise them. I'm going to surprise them by having my son take their sin. And then I'm going to surprise them again by having my son rise from the grave. Come out victorious. You cannot argue or debate or wisdom your way into the kingdom of God. You only have to receive God's joyous surprise. And that joyous surprise is the cross of Christ something none of us could have dreamt up. But what's better, I'm not sure if you saw this, what's better is that that invitation is not for people who are naturally inclined towards Jesus. See, we think Christians and churches are full of people who are really kind of naturally predisposed to church, naturally predisposed to Jesus, Right? I thought that before I was a Christian. I'm sure many of you think that now. But Paul says that those who are called are not called from this third group, but are called from amongst Jews and Greeks. In other words, people who have worldly conceptions of power. People who have worldly conceptions of wisdom. People who get it wrong all the time and live wrong all the time. That's who God calls. That's who God delights to save. In other words, God calls people who outside of God's calling would think the cross is dumb. People who look at the cross and at first glance don't see power but see utter foolishness, complete impotence. That's how you and I once thought. But God calls these people and he gives them eyes to see. Third thing, For the Christian in the room, the third thing I want us to see is that the cross is power today for us who are being saved. Notice in verse 18, Paul says, we are being saved by the power of the cross. Now to some, Paul's use of the present tense, those who are perishing and those who are being saved is a bit concerning, right? What do you mean being saved? Like, am I saved or am I being saved? Well, yes, if you're a Christian, you are saved. Paul has said for us, it pleased God to save once and for all through the folly of what we preach. That is to save today, to save now, to save in this moment. Our salvation is a past reality that hinges and is built on the cross. But we can also think, and Paul asks us to think this way, of our salvation like this. All of humanity, in their rejection of God, is floating down a river. And it's not a nice lazy river like you get at theme parks or like in nice, you know, wooded areas. This river leads to a waterfall, which leads to then rocks on the bottom, which will, will kill us. And all of humanity... Rejecting God's wisdom is floating down this river. That is until God saved us. God sent his son Jesus to rescue us through his death on the cross. If we trust in him, believe in him, put our faith in him. And when he does that, we are put, as it were, into the boat. We are saved. We're safe. We're not floating down that river any longer. We're not on our way to ruin any longer. But that boat, as we all know, is not yet on shore. So, are we saved? Yes. Are we on that boat heading to shore? Are we being saved? Yes. Will we be saved at Christ's return when he makes, as we sung this morning, all things new? Yes. That's what Paul's getting at here. We can think of our salvation in each of those tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We, we trust that Jesus died in our, on, in our place on the cross once, which saves us. But our salvation is an ongoing experience of day-by-day day trusting that all our sin has been paid for. And I think it's here if again we're honest with each other, which we should be, I think it's here that you and I forget to pick up in our daily walk, our daily struggle to follow Jesus, one of the greatest tools we've been given as Christians. See, Paul says, for all of us pilgrims on this road, being saved in this boat, the cross is right now the power of God for us. Which means this, when we rush out of our home in the morning, unable to look at our family in the eye, because we're overcome with the guilt and shame of the night before, the cross of Jesus Christ, where your sin was paid for, where that shameful thing was paid for, it is the power of God in your life. And it means this, when you get home from the gathering today and you get on your knees and you begin weeping, knowing that you have sinned to confess and you're unsure if you'll find forgiveness because the people around you sure didn't extend it to you. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ where your sin was paid for. It is the power of God in your life today. And when Lord willing, we find ourselves at the end of our life. And every other patient on that hospital floor is heading to death in bitterness, in fear, and in uncertainty. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Rest assured. Know that your sin was paid for. It is the power of God in your life. Do you see Christ? This is not just a past reality it is for us to appropriate now to live into today we don't move past, we don't move above, we don't move beyond the cross it was the power of God to save us it is the power of God to keep us and it will be the power of God to bring us home point three Power and wisdom in our life. I have a confession to make this morning, much to the disappointment of my wife. This was the second sermon on 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, I wrote this week, which it's great. I love doing that. But the first sermon I wrote, true things were said. True things were proclaimed, but it was up here. It was a bit abstract. A bit distant. And so I want to end this morning by bringing it down for us. Because to leave the cross up here in the abstract and to not bring it to our daily life would be wrong. And would be to miss what Paul's talking about this morning. Because if you leave here with one thing today, I want you to leave knowing that the cross of Jesus really does change how we view everything, everything, including power and wisdom. So let me end by reading verses 24 to 25 and making a few closing exhortations. Verses 24 to 25, and there we read this. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. The the cross is not only power for our life, it's also wisdom for our life. It's not just the instrument of our salvation. The cross now has become the interpretive lens through which we are to view all of reality, everything through the cross. We don't just look at power differently. We look at everything differently. And so we ask this. I want to ask these questions with you this morning as a church, as a community. For example, how does the cross change how I view friendship? Friendship. Do I view people? Do you view people? Do we view people on the basis of what we can get from them, extract from them? Do we treat them like a a commodity, a a good to be used up and then discarded? Or do we lay our lives down for our friends as our friend Jesus laid his life down for us? How does the cross change how we view friendship? How does the cross, and and this is a hot-button topic, and let's just talk about it, how does the cross change how we view leadership in the church? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Again, it's power over. Power over, power over, power over. He goes on to say, It shall not be so among you. Not among you. Not in my church. Not with my people. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Listen. Listen. He roots this new paradoxical, strange form of leadership in what? Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but what did he do? He came to give his life as a ransom for many. If you don't know this already, and I'm sure you do, we will never exhibit perfect leadership in this church. And I can tell you a thousand times I've failed, not just in the history of this church, but this past week alone. But our hope, our goal, what we're working towards is leadership in view of the cross. Your community group leaders are leading you in the way of the cross. A way that does not exalt them or their gifts or their insights, but seeks to serve you. How does the cross change, third thing, how I view mission? Mission. Imagine this. Jesus was God in heaven. God in heaven who left his throne. God in heaven who became man. God in heaven who came and hungered, was thirsty, who cried and who mourned, who was nailed to a cross, scorned and rejected, spat on and humiliated. God in heaven left his throne that he might pick up the cross. Why? That we might live. And yet, honestly, I have a hard time getting off the couch and calling that neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and opening my home to people who are strange and different than me. Does the cross shape our mission? Or really, are we just trying to keep what's ours? Accumulate power. Accumulate wisdom from a distance. Friends, I'm not lying when I say the cross changes how we view everything. Everything, everything. And my challenge to you this week is to go home and take all of your life and ask, how does this fit under the cross? Go to community group this week and ask your leader, how does this fit in view of the cross? How does my parenting change in view of the cross? How does my sexuality change in view of the cross? How does everything change in view of the cross? Indeed, we're spending our whole lifetime asking these questions. Further, we should ask: Am I looking at these things through the lens of the cross, or 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 th- through another lens? Did I get my interpretive lens from lo- some lifestyle guru? somebody I follow on Instagram? Marie Kondo? Sparking joy through organization, which I'm all for. The TV I watch. Living a cross-shaped life, as, as the name suggests, is not easy. It's not easy. But here's the paradox. When we live in the way of the cross, we discover that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. We realize and learn and love and cherish that the way of the cross has been the way to real living all along. Authors uh, Rankin Wilborn and Brian Gregor, they write this. And I love what they say. Our culture is having a wisdom contest, a wisdom contest about how to live a fully human life. And each of us is participating by virtue of the choices we make and the desires we pursue. Whether we know it or not, we're all participating in this cultural wisdom contest. But then they write this. The cruciform life, the life shaped by the cross, is God's way, is God's wisdom for the good and beautiful life he intends for his creatures to have. Let's pray, Christ City. Father, we come this morning and we confess that we lack faith to believe what you have revealed to us. We lack faith to believe that true life is found in dying to ourselves, our world, our worldly conceptions of power and wisdom. And so, Father, I ask And together we ask as a church, help us in our unbelief. Help us to follow your son, Jesus. To examine every corner of our life through the lens of your cross. Father, for our sake, that we might know life, but also for the sake of those in this neighborhood who don't know you. That we might bear witness to a new way of living. A new way of being. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.